The Infernal Trap. I can't find it anywhere, said the young man, running back in dismay. It has gone from my room. I can't make it out. Never mind, cried the widow Dugraval, half demented. All the better. I will do the business myself. She seized Lupin by the throat, clutched him with her ten fingers, digging her nails into his flesh, and began to squeeze with all her might. Lupin uttered a hoarse rattle and gave himself up for lost. Suddenly, there was a crash at the window. One of the panes was smashed to pieces. What's that? What is it? stammered the widow, drawing herself erect in alarm. Gabriel, who had turned even paler than usual, murmured, I don't know. I can't think. Who can have done it? said the widow. She dared not move, waiting for what would come next. And one thing above all terrified her, the fact that there was no missile on the floor around them, although the pane of glass, as was clearly visible, had given way before the crash of a heavy and fairly large object, a stone, probably. After a while, she looked under the bed, under the chest of drawers. Nothing, she said. No, said her nephew, who was also looking. And resuming her seat, she said, I feel frightened. My arms fail me. You finish him off. Gabriel confessed, I'm frightened also. Still, still, she stammered, it's got to be done. I swore it. Making one last effort, she returned to Lupin and grasped his neck with her stiff fingers. But Lupin, who was watching her pallid face, received a very clear sensation that she would not have the courage to kill him. To her, he was becoming something sacred, invulnerable. A mysterious power was protecting him against every attack, a power which had already saved him three times by inexplicable means and which would find other means to protect him against the wiles of death. She said to him in a hoarse voice, Oh, you must be laughing at me. Not at all, upon my word. I should feel frightened of myself in your place. Nonsense, you scum of the earth. You imagine that you will be rescued, that your friends are waiting outside. It's out of the question, my fine fellow. I know, it's not they defending me. Nobody's defending me. Well, then? Well, all the same, there's something strange at the bottom of it, something fantastic and miraculous that makes your flesh creep, my fine lady. You villain. You'll be laughing on the other side of your mouth before long. I doubt it. You wait and see. She reflected once more and said to her nephew, What would you do? Fasten his arm again and let's be off, he replied. A hideous suggestion. It meant condemning Lupin to the most horrible of all deaths, death by starvation. No, said the widow. He might still find a means of escape. I know something better than that. She took down the receiver of the telephone, waited, and asked, Number 82248, please. And, after a second or two, Hello, is that the Criminal Investigation Department? Is Chief Inspector Ganimar there? In twenty minutes, you say? I'm sorry. However, when he comes, give him this message from Madame Dugraval. Yes, Madame Nicholas Dugraval. Ask him to come to my flat. Tell him to open the looking-glass door of my wardrobe, and when he has done so, he will see that the wardrobe hides an outlet, which makes my bedroom communicate with two other rooms. In one of these, you will find a man bound hand and foot. It is the thief, Dugraval's murderer. You don't believe me? Tell Mr. Ganimar. He will believe me right enough. Oh, I was almost forgetting to give you the man's name. 
Arsene Lupin. And without another word, she replaced the receiver. There, Lupin, that's done. After all, I would just as soon have my revenge this way. How I shall hold my sides when I read the reports of the Lupin trial. Are you coming, Gabriel? Yes, aunt. Goodbye, Lupin. You and I shan't see each other again, I expect, for we are going abroad. But I promise to send you some sweets while you're in prison. Chocolates, mother. We'll eat them together. Goodbye. Au revoir. The widow went out with her nephew, leaving Lupin fastened down to the bed. He had once moved his free arm and tried to release himself, but he realized at the first attempt that he would never have the strength to break the wire strands that bound him. Exhausted with fever and pain, what could he do in the twenty minutes or so that were left to him before Ganimard's arrival? Nor did he count upon his friends. True, he had been thrice saved from death, but this was evidently due to an astounding series of accidents and not to any interference on the part of his allies. Otherwise, they would not have contented themselves with these extraordinary manifestations, but would have rescued him for good and all. No, he must abandon all hope. Ganimard was coming. Ganimard would find him there. It was inevitable. There was no getting away from the fact. And the prospect of what was coming irritated him singularly. He already heard his old enemy's jibes ringing in his ears. He foresaw the roars of laughter with which the incredible news would be greeted on the morrow. To be arrested in action, so to speak, on the battlefield by an imposing detachment of adversaries was one thing, but to be arrested, or rather picked up, scraped up, gathered up in such conditions, was really too silly. And Lupin, who had so often scoffed at others, felt all the ridicule that was falling to his share in the ending of the Dugerval business, all the bathos of allowing himself to be caught in the widow's infernal trap, and finally of being served up to the police like a dish of game, roasted to a turn and nicely seasoned. Blow the widow, he growled. I'd rather she had cut my throat and done with it. He pricked up his ears. Someone was moving in the next room. Ganimard. No. Great as his eagerness would be, he could not be there yet. Besides, Ganimard would not have acted like that, would not have opened the door as gently as the other person was doing. What other person? Lupin remembered the three miraculous interventions to which he owed his life. Was it possible that there was really somebody who had protected him against the widow, and that that somebody was now attempting to rescue him? But if so, who? Unseen by Lupin, the stranger stooped behind the bed. Lupin heard the sound of the pliers attacking the wire strands and releasing him little by little. First his chest was freed, then his arms, then his legs. And a voice said to him, You must get up and dress. Feeling very weak, he half raised himself in bed at the moment when the stranger rose from her stooping posture. Who are you? he whispered. Who are you? And a great surprise overcame him. By his side stood a woman, a woman dressed in black with a lace shawl over her head, covering part of her face. And the woman, as far as he could judge, was young and of a graceful and slender stature. Who are you? he repeated. You must come now, said the woman. There's no time to lose. Can I? asked Lupin, making a desperate effort. I doubt if I have the strength. 
Drink this. She poured some milk into a cup, and as she handed it to him, her lace opened, leaving the face uncovered. You, he stammered. It, it's, it's you. It's you. It, it was you who were... He stared in amazement at this woman, whose features presented so striking a resemblance to Gabriel's, whose delicate, regular face had the same pallor, whose mouth wore the same hard and forbidding expression. No sister could have borne so great a likeness to her brother. There was not a doubt possible. It was the identical person. And, without believing for a moment that Gabriel had concealed himself in a woman's clothes, Lupin, on the contrary, received the distinct impression that it was a woman standing beside him, and that the stripling who had pursued him with his hatred and struck him with the dagger was in very deed a woman. In order to follow their trade with greater ease, the Dugreval pair had accustomed her to disguise herself as a boy. You. You, he repeated. Who would have suspected? She emptied the contents of a phial into the cup. Drink this cordial, she said. He hesitated, thinking of poison. She added, It was I who saved you. Of course, of course, he said. It was you who removed the bullets from the revolver? Yes. And you who hid the knife? Here it is, in my pocket. And you who smashed the window pane while your aunt was throttling me? Yes, it was I, with the paperweight on the table. I threw it into the street. But why? Why? he asked, in utter amazement. Drink the cordial. Didn't you want me to die? But then why did you stab me to begin with? Drink the cordial. He emptied the cup at a draft, without quite knowing the reason of his sudden confidence. Dress yourself, quickly, she commanded, retiring to the window. He obeyed, and she came back to him, for he had dropped into a chair, exhausted. We must go now. We must. We have only just time. Collect your strength. She bent forward a little so that he might lean on her shoulder and turned toward the door and the staircase. And Lupin walked as one walks in a dream, one of those queer dreams in which the most inconsequent things occur, a dream that was the happy sequel of the terrible nightmare in which he had lived for the past fortnight. A thought struck him, however. He began to laugh. <laughs> Poor Ganimar. <laughs> Upon my word, the fellow has no luck. <laughs> I would give two pence to see him coming to arrest me. <laughs> After descending the staircase with the aid of his companion, who supported him with incredible vigor, he found himself in the street opposite a motor car into which she helped him to mount. Right away, she said to the driver. Lupin, dazed by the open air and the speed at which they were traveling, hardly took stock of the drive and of the incidents on the road. He recovered all his consciousness when he found himself at home in one of the flats which he occupied, looked after by his servant, to whom the girl gave a few rapid instructions. You can go, he said to the man. But when the girl turned to go as well, he held her back by a fold of her dress. No, no, you must first explain. Why did you save me? Did you return unknown to your aunt? But why did you save me? Was it from pity? She did not answer. With her figure drawn up and her head flung back a little, she retained her hard and impenetrable air. Nevertheless, 
he thought he noticed that the lines of her mouth showed not so much cruelty as bitterness. Her eyes, her beautiful, dark eyes, revealed melancholy. And Lupin, without as yet understanding, received a vague intuition of what was passing within her. He seized her hand. She pushed him away with a start of revolt in which he felt hatred, almost repulsion. And when he insisted, she cried, Let me be, will you? Let me be. Can't you see that I detest you? They looked at each other for a moment, Lupin disconcerted, she quivering and full of uneasiness, her pale face all flushed with unwanted color. He said to her, gently, If you detested me, you should have let me die. It was simple enough. Why didn't you? Why? Why? How do I know? Her face contracted. With a sudden movement, she hid it in her two hands, and he saw tears trickle between her fingers. Greatly touched, he thought of addressing her in fond words, such as one would use to a little girl whom one wished to console, and of giving her good advice and saving her in his turn and snatching her from the bad life which she was leading, perhaps against her better nature. But such words would have sounded ridiculous coming from his lips, and he did not know what to say now that he understood the whole story and was able to picture the young woman sitting beside his sickbed, nursing the man whom she had wounded, admiring his pluck and gaiety, becoming attracted to him, falling in love with him, and thrice over, probably in spite of herself, under a sort of instinctive impulse amid fits of spite and rage, saving him from death. And all this was so strange, so unforeseen. Lupin was so much unmanned by his astonishment that, this time, he did not try to retain her when she made for the door, backward, without taking her eyes from him. She lowered her head, smiled for an instant, and disappeared. He rang the bell quickly. Follow that woman, he said to his man. Or no, stay where you are. After all, it is better so. He sat brooding for a while, possessed by the girl's image. Then he revolved in his mind all that curious, stirring, and tragic adventure in which he had been so very near succumbing, and, taking a hand-glass from the table, he gazed for a long time and with a certain self-complacency at his features, which illness and pain had not succeeded in impairing to any great extent. "'Good looks count for something after all,' he muttered. 